0: Welcome to the audio podcast of the Sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. There are times in our lives where things become very clear to us. Whether it's something that physically comes into view for us, or perhaps something that we just come to understand better, Stuff coming into focus is a very helpful thing for us. Whether it's something as simple as, like for me, actually putting my glasses on right away in the morning and having the fuzziness of the room come into focus, or whether it's something as simple as somebody graciously explaining the joke that you didn't get to you, clarity is a very wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Details being fuzzy can lead to a lot of frustration because everyone likes it when things are clearly defined. You like a clearly defined task list over a vague one. You like to know what you need to do. I know that there are many people who have perhaps been talked to at their job because of their performance, and yet they had no idea... What they were supposed to do, there wasn't a clearly defined job description. How were they supposed to do what was expected of them if they didn't know? As we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, you and I have been blessed to have very good clarity about the mission of Jesus. Because Luke is not mincing words about who Jesus is. We have seen with the way he is giving us the story of Jesus, that he wants us to know who this Jesus of Nazareth is. He's shown us his divine origin, his fulfillment of prophetic scripture. He's shown us the authoritative teaching of Jesus, and then the miracles that show that this Jesus is truly a messenger from God. You and I, we have inside knowledge of the events, and at times we even get the thoughts of those involved in the stories that are being told to us about Jesus here in Luke. But imagine you're the disciples. You're out following Jesus here and there. You're seeing the miracles. You're hearing his teaching. And you're spending a very substantial amount of time with with this one that everybody is amazed by. You know who he is. You, you, You just know. But we really haven't seen these guys say it out loud and clarify what they believe to be true about who Jesus is. The details are clear. But what those details might be for these guys who are following around What they might mean for him, it hasn't been stated. Their belief might be a little bit fuzzy. To say and to confess who Jesus is out loud would be substantial and would be a very clarifying moment for these people who have left everything to follow Jesus. And so as we spend our time this morning in the 18th through 27th verses of Luke 9... Let's break down the big events that are here in the text to help us track the story in the hopes of navigating the text faithfully and also applying the passage to our lives. So the first thing that we're going to see is that Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Now we know this to be true, as I just mentioned. But Luke gives us the impression that people know it, but really aren't declaring it. And Jesus definitely isn't going to go around and brag about it, is he? But clearly, there is heavy chatter about Jesus out there amongst the people. And now Jesus wants to know what his own followers have to think about him. And Peter gives Jesus the answer that we already know to be true when he confesses him to be the anointed one of God. And finally, or, and secondly... Jesus lets, lets, um, lets them know that following them isn't going to be easy. We see that they are going to suffer. This is not an easy thing. You, you would think that being the top guys following the divine Messiah of God would be a setup for Easy Street. Well, no, because Jesus himself is going to suffer. Jesus tells the disciples that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again on the third day. They, Jesus is going to suffer, and so in turn, we see that the guys who are his followers are going to suffer as well. He lets them know. As I said, you would think being the top guys following this Messiah would be the way to go. I mean, you've got God on your side, right? But Jesus lets his followers know that they will be persecuted by the world. And so Jesus calls them to deny themselves instead of seeking glory. So we get a substantial change of pace as we come to verse 18 this morning. Last week, we read that Jesus and disciples were trying to get alone. And they were followed by the crowds, and Jesus taught these crowds, and he healed them. And because they were in a desolate place, he challenged the disciples to feed all the people. And then Jesus provided for them in abundance by feeding all 5,000 of them bread and fish. Now suddenly, as we come to verse 18, we are brought to a moment where Jesus is in fact alone, and he is praying alone. We see this in the text. It, It does something confusing here, because It tells us that Jesus is praying alone, but then it tells us that the disciples were with him. Well, what we're being told here is that they are finally able to get away, just like they planned to do in what we saw last week. They are finally able to get get away. Now, whether it was because they were finally able to sneak out and not be tracked or because the people were satisfied with what they ate and they, they went home for the night, The idea here that Luke is giving us is that finally they're alone. And so what do we see that Jesus and his disciples are doing? They are in prayer. They are taking the time alone to commune with God in prayer. It's an important reminder for us that even though Jesus has a mission to do, and he had a limited time to do it, he still took time to get away. He still took the time to pray. And if the Lord of heaven and earth, the second person of the Holy Trinity, needs to commune with the Father, so do you and I. It's very easy for us to think that we have too much to do to take time to pray, but it's vital that we stop and take the time to cast our cares upon the Lord, no matter how busy we are. Jesus found this to be a priority, and we should be making this a priority for ourselves as well. But here, Luke doesn't provide us with a lot of details, does he? We, we see that Jesus takes advantage of their time that he has alone with the disciples to ask them a very important question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, this is an interesting question. Because you know as the disciples are taking in the teaching and the healing ministry of Jesus, they're hearing the buzz of the crowds. Now we've been privy to what the crowds are saying. Remember back to the story of Herod, when he was wondering about Jesus in the previous chapter. But here this same language that Herod used is being repeated for us. The commentary going on in the crowds is given to us as a reminder of the possibilities that people were putting out there in regards to the identity of Jesus. And so we once again hear that some are saying he's John the Baptist, back from the dead. Now, now remember, they didn't have cameras. They didn't have social media to know what everyone looked like. They were hearing about Jesus, but they probably had no idea what he actually looked like, many of them. They'd never seen him. So John the Baptist previously was drawing a crowd, and then he's killed by Herod, but people are now seeing another man, drawing a crowd, preaching a message similar to John the Baptist, doing amazing miracles. Maybe this is John, come back. Maybe this is revenge on Herod. Who knows what they were thinking? But John was like the prophets of old. He was unique, and so they weren't expecting just another prophet to arise so quickly. So maybe, just maybe it's John, come back from the dead. But yet others are thinking Elijah. Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, so it makes sense to this guy out there in the wilderness. Maybe he's Elijah come back doing these great miracles like Elijah of old. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, right? He didn't die. So maybe Elijah's come back in a reverse whirlwind. You know, they, He went up in a whirlwind, came back down in a whirlwind. We have Elijah. Who knows? And yet still others are suggesting other prophets that have come back from the dead. Now all of these are relatively absurd to, to you and I, right? But think about it from their perspective. You're looking for an explanation to the amazing reality that is Jesus. And you're looking for answers. And And then imagine the crowd element of this and, and how ideas would have spread. All these incorrect answers going around, all the scuttlebutt going all these different directions. But you can understand why They went in all these directions. There is so much information out there about Jesus and the amazing things that he's doing. And no one is providing clarity on who he is. So the people are trying to provide that clarity for themselves, right? But with all those answers on the table, Jesus asked his disciples a much more pointed question. I ask you who the crowds say that I am, but who do you say that I am? The crowds have a lot to say, but what do those of you who have heard me teach in a large group and in a small group think? You've seen me heal some smaller afflictions when you're out and about with me amongst the crowds, but you've also seen me cast out the demons and calm the storm. So disciples, what is your conviction about my identity? Who do you say that I am? I enjoy thinking about this interaction. You wonder what the glances were around the group when he asked this, right? You know that these guys probably had these conversations on the road or while they were sitting around eating their hummus or whatever. And we see that if, if Peter, who boldly makes a confession, is going to make the statement, it's probably what the rest of them were thinking too, right? Right? he tells Jesus who he believes him to be, the Christ of God. And this is a bold statement because Peter is saying the one standing in front of him is the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the Christ of God, the one that has been promised since the fall, the one who the entire Old Testament points to, the one that Peter's entire family throughout the ages has been waiting for, has been telling their, their children is going to come and be the divine rescuer. Now here in this moment, Peter stands in front of the one that he believes to be the Messiah and he confesses him to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. Confessing that Jesus is the one. And You can imagine the moment of clarity this gave Peter. He finally said what he believed out loud, face to face with Jesus. There it was. It's out in the open. What we have been able to see so clearly as we read Luke is now more than just something you and I as the readers are thinking. It has been said out loud. And the response of Jesus is interesting. And while it provides clarity for us, It might have made things even more fuzzy for the disciples. As we move on to our second point in verses 21 and 22, you have to wonder what the disciples thought about this. This man in front of you has just acknowledged that he's the Messiah. He's the one, the one that's been waited for. And now he's telling you to be quiet about it. You would think this would be the moment at which the revolution begins, man. This is where it starts. He has power. He has a large following. We can't keep the people away most of the time. Let's go. Let's start the revolution. But it's very clear that the idea that the people have about what the Messiah should do is not what the ultimate plan is. They expect a political leader who gets the Roman occupying forces out of their country. For the first statement from Jesus here to be, the Son of Man must suffer many things. That's just not what they thought was going to happen. Nobody writes the story that way. They've got the clarity that he's the promised one, but now Jesus is muddying the waters with this statement that he's going to suffer. If you're the Messiah, Jesus, why would you suffer? Why would that happen? That makes no sense at all to our human minds. In our human ideas of conquest does it. Again, things are getting fuzzy for the disciples. But Jesus provides some ideas why this would happen. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders and be killed. Again, that's not what they would expect. But now we get the idea of why Jesus is going to suffer. But then Jesus makes arguably the most confusing statement of all. On the third day he will be raised. Wait, what? The disciples have seen Jesus raise people from the dead multiple times. We've seen this in Luke. But it's Jesus who's doing the raising in those stories. If he's the one who's killed, how is he going to be raised? How is that going to happen? You have to wonder if some of the disciples were thinking, Okay, If Jesus is expecting me to be the one who raises him, I've healed a few people here and there, Jesus, but being asked to bring someone to life is another thing altogether. And the pressure of raising the Messiah, yeah, I don't think I need that kind of stress in my life. But what we see is the mission of the Messiah is different from the expectations that man has for the Messiah we expect a conquering hero who's on our side and take down takes down our enemies but instead jesus lets us know that those who oppose him are going to cause him to not only suffer but they're going to take his life and the contrast between messianic expectations and what jesus says is going to happen is letting us know that we have a far more serious problem Than we usually think we do. Our idea is that whatever is the problem in front of our faces at the moment is the most important thing and the thing that God needs to remedy for us, right? Their problem in that moment was the occupation of the Romans. And they expected God to give them political power and to give them influence again. But their real issue was not the Roman occupying forces in their land. But the sin that occupied their hearts and the death that the fall of humanity brought upon all of creation, that was their problem. Not the occupying Romans, but the sin that was within them. The sin that caused them to fall. The sin that brought death. None of the things that we think should matter are too important if we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a Savior who rescues us from death. And to do that, He needs to suffer the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. We don't need a teacher with good advice. We need a Savior who bears the wrath of God that we deserve and then rises victoriously over the death that we deserve. That's what we really need. And without that clarity, we're going to get the ministry of Jesus wrong. And Luke is making this unbelievably clear for us. This is what you and I really need. And with this clarity spelled out for the ministry of the Messiah, we then see what is in store for his followers as we move on to the final section of our passage and move to verse 21. Now we know from other parts of the Gospels that the disciples had pretty significant expectations of what they would get out of following jesus remember the story of the disciples where they were arguing about who would sit at the right and left hand of jesus when he came into his kingdom remember what they thought they were going to get out of this deal they weren't expecting suffering they were planning on conquest and human glory and so when jesus spells this out for them it was probably a pretty significant shot to the gut Because look at what Jesus has to say. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's not what we naturally desire for ourselves. We don't want to deny ourselves. We want to glorify ourselves. And as Jesus says that they should take up their cross, they know what that means. As I've talked about before, For us, the cross is a symbol of life and a symbol of forgiveness, a symbol of hope. But in their first century Jewish minds, it was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of oppression by the Romans. It was a symbol of execution by the state. And so to do this, to take up your cross, meant that they were going to suffer themselves. And who wants that? But Jesus takes it so much further, doesn't he? He says, whoever loses his life for my sake will will save it. Jesus makes sure that they know that their lives will not be ones that are glorified by an earthly status. They're not going to be lifted to a high earthly estate. Their path is one of suffering. Their path is one of death. This would have been a confusing statement for the disciples once again. But Jesus is providing clarity for them with one of the most famous statements that he makes. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? In other words, what good is it if the Romans are kicked out and you get to be a big shot in the new government? If you end up in hell, what difference does it make? What profit is there in money, in fame, and in power if on the last day you are judged... And found to be unrighteous, and Jesus gets even more clear. He says that he one day he is going to come in his glory, but that glory does not come without the suffering. So what is his victory over if he's going to come in victory? If he is glorified in this victory, what is it a victory over? Well, it's a victory over sin, death, hell, and the devil. And so His followers do well to look to that victory for their hope. And if they are ashamed of His suffering and ashamed of His death, then it says that He is ashamed of them when His kingdom fully comes. And this isn't a feeling of embarrassment here. It is about acknowledging the victory that Jesus has. The victory that He has won It's about receiving His work and not being ashamed of the fact that you have a suffering Savior who paid the price for your sin on your behalf. If you don't receive the suffering Savior, then you don't know the Savior because it is who He is. And it's what He has done to win victory for His people. And as the passage closes up, we are told that there are those who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now this makes some confusion. What, what is the kingdom of God? What the, some of them aren't going to die until Jesus comes in his glory. Well, that, that's not what he's saying. I, I believe the best interpretation of this passage flows naturally with the flow of the text here. Jesus has just told his disciples that they need to suffer just as he will suffer. But he's letting them know that they are going to survive to see his death resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That not only flows with the book of Luke, but Luke's second book, telling of the early church, the book of Acts, and it tells us how the apostles are persecuted and how the message of the gospel spreads. So the idea here is that they will suffer, yes, but they are going to see the coming of the message of the ascend- the risen and ascended King of glory, the King of history. And so, we have seen that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter confesses him as the Christ. But we've also seen that he is going to suffer and die. And so will his followers. They will have suffering. And this passage is filled with the good news of what Jesus is going to do for his people. But at the same time, it's also filled with a call to discipleship that his followers must respond to. And so we're going to consider our response to this call to discipleship as our application. So, as we look at God's word and as we consider how we take it into the world this week, we think of this call to discipleship. So, the first application that I have for us today is a question. And it's the same question that Jesus asked his disciples Who do you say that he is? We are blessed with the clarity of God's Word on this matter. But still, we are prone to make Jesus in our own image. Do we see Jesus as a wise sage who has told us how to do things and how to love others, but forget that He is a suffering Savior? Do we think that somehow we follow Jesus and by our works we ascend to God, that we become more like God because we are doing the law? Or do we believe that we come to God not through what we do, but what He has done for us by suffering and dying for us in His divine nature and in His human nature? Do we receive the truth that His glory is found not in our ascent, not in human ascent and power, but instead in the glory of His suffering, in His coming down to us to bear the wrath of God, who do we say that Jesus is? Are we still looking for earthly ascent and conquest? Or are we content with the message of the glory of the heavenly kingdom that He established in His death, resurrection, and ascension while we await His return to judge the living and the dead? Who do we say Jesus is? And do we let His Word define that? Or are we making a God of our own design? Are we trying to ascend to Him on our own? Who do we say that Jesus is? And in that same vein, the answer that we have, the call that we have on our lives is to see that Jesus is the Christ of God and take up our cross in service of our Savior. He says to take up our cross daily. And the timing of us coming across this narrative as we work our way through Luke is excellent because it landed for us on Reformation Sunday. Now when the Reformers rediscovered the message of the gospel in the 16th century, and they realized that it was centered on salvation by grace alone through faith alone on account of the work of Christ alone, one of the categories that Martin Luther, Martin Luther blessed the church with was a teaching that I've mentioned before, the teaching of the theology of glory, human ascent, versus the theology of the cross, God coming down to us. Martin Luther taught that the theology of glory is the theology of the glory of man and in our belief in our ability to ascend to God by our own works. And it is an idea that matches the ideas of earthly glory that would have been the expectations of the crowds and of the disciples. But the theology of the cross understands that God saves through suffering and in the things of low estate. The glory of, found is, the glory of God is not found in conquest and in earthly power, but the glory of God is found in suffering and in servanthood. And so as we consider the truth of who Jesus is, may you and I desire to serve as Jesus served. May we sacrifice of ourselves for His kingdom, that the message of Christ in Him crucified might go into the world that others may hear and believe. Because we are in Christ, we don't expect glory for ourselves, but we expect to take up our cross because our Savior first took up the cross for us. So may you and I depart from here today and may we be confident in who Jesus is and what He has done. This leads us to faithful service to our Savior that He might receive all honor, all glory, and all praise for His work to rescue Himself, a people for Himself, a people that He rescues from sin, death, hell, and the devil. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page.